From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Think of it as an interstellar time capsule. The OSIRIS-REx spacecraft is about to swing by Earth and drop off a sample it took from the asteroid Bennu, 200 million miles away. They believe that Bennu is from the formation of the solar system and that this will teach us more about the building blocks or the origins of the solar system. We'll speak with a mission leader in Colorado about the engineering it took to pull off such a tricky endeavor. Then, an effort to save endangered fish in the West is itself in jeopardy. And later, pinching, pleading, folding, turning, the art of the wonton with Denver chef Penelope Wong. You know, the dishes that I cook, a lot of the dishes from my grandmother's kitchen, it's kind of my way of holding on to them. Meeting the growing demand for in-depth news and music exploration across Colorado is time-consuming and expensive work. And member support is central to delivering the local stories you rely on. I'm Jason Moore, Membership Director at Colorado Public Radio. Your support today upholds impartial journalism, intelligent debate, and an informed, curious community. Members are part of something special at CPR, and we want you to know that you are truly appreciated. Begin or renew your membership today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Here's one heck of a mission. Travel about 200 million miles from Earth and bring back something that weighs about as much as a hard-boiled egg. That is the task Lockheed Martin faced with OSIRIS-REx to retrieve a sample from an asteroid called Bennu. And if all goes according to plan, the specimen weighing just about two ounces will land on Earth September 24th. Engineer Sandy Friend is OSIRIS-REx's program manager for Lockheed Martin. It's NASA's prime contractor on this mission. Hi, Sandy. Hello. This sample is expected to land in the Utah desert in a little capsule. When scientists get it open, what will they see? Yeah, so we're slated to land in the Utah Test and Training Range. Uh, When they open up the capsule, we'll see our collector inside that should have all of our samples of asteroid Bennu in it. It'll actually take them a number of days to fully disassemble that to see exactly how much sample is inside of there. Why does it take several days to disassemble? They want to be very careful that they have every little piece of dust or rock, anything from the asteroid. They want to make sure they collect and categorize it correctly and get it put into their science catalog. Yeah, I mean, if you have invested as much time and energy and money in bringing back a sample, you want every square, I mean, what millimeter of that thing. Right, absolutely. Do you believe it's like a sandy consistency or more rocky, pebbly? The images we have make it look like a very rocky surface, and there are definitely large boulders on the surface of Bennu. However, when we made contact, it looks like a lot of those rocks just broke apart rather easily. So we expect inside of the collector is a lot of fine-grained dust, but uh, also a lot of rocks. So crumbly. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. What do scientists hope to learn from it? They believe that Bennu is from the formation of the solar system, and that this will teach us more about the building blocks or the origins of the solar system. So that is their main goal. Uh, But anytime you bring anything back from space, you'll learn something um, just about what's out there and maybe what has collided with it in the past. 
So can we say this is some of the oldest material in the universe? That's what they believe. But again, once the sample's on the ground is when they'll be able to actually confirm their hypothesis. Is there any concern of like unleashing (laughs) some space virus? I'm sorry, that is just like such a layman's dumb question. But like, are there any concerns about contamination? No, not at all. This sample is not labeled as hazardous whatsoever. Um, It is going to be opened in a clean room and taken care of um, just as the previous samples that have been returned um, have been down at the Johnson Space Center, but no concerns of harboring any virus. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for that. There's still a little, you know, sore after the pandemic here. I understand there's a chance, a very, very slim chance that the asteroid Bennu, from which this sample is coming, could one day crash into the Earth. Does that play a role in wanting to learn more about Bennu? It does. The primary goal is to understand what Bennu is made up of. But there is great interest amongst the science community as well as NASA to understanding how can we deflect asteroids that come near Earth. Mm. And so we have, uh, as part of the science on this mission, learned more about Bennu's orbit, how it changes. Um, But there is a very small chance in the late 2100 time frame that Bennu will come close enough to Earth for potential impact. How big is Bennu? Bennu is 500 meters in diameter. Okay, 500 meters in diameter. I'll ask you more about what it is to take a sample from Bennu, but is it possible that the sample is material we've never seen before? Or is it just going to be, you know, similar to what we have on Earth? It'll be more pristine from an asteroid, right? There's lots of things that re-enter meteorites all the time that Uh come back in. But this sample will be pristine because it's going to be uh, protected from the atmosphere when it comes in. So there's always a chance they find something they weren't expecting. We have a lot of science instruments on board, so they have a good idea of what Bennu is like. But the samples underneath the labs and the technology we have here on Earth will be a great benefit. Yeah, this is fascinating. In other words, this is bringing it back in a very controlled environment as opposed to uh, burning up in the atmosphere and kind of making it here and having gone through this rather crazy transformation. I mean, that's normally how this stuff comes back, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is not the first time a sample has been collected from an asteroid. The Japanese did it several years ago. Once it got back to Earth, it was a little chaotic getting it to NASA for analysis. They packed the samples in suitcases, negotiated with TSA so they didn't get x-rayed, and put them in seats on a commercial airplane. Uh, Have Lockheed and NASA got a better plan? So the Hayabusa mission is our sister mission out of JAXA. And we have, of course, some of their sample, as you mentioned, and we will share some of our sample with them. However, the means of transporting the sample is not something that is widely shared. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that makes sense. You don't want anything thwarted or interrupted. So the mission here is rather fundamental science, exploring the origins of the universe. But I know some private companies, I mean, we spoke to one in Colorado not long ago, are looking at asteroids as a resource. They want to mine minerals and maybe water. Do you think that plays into this as well? A little bit. I think the asteroid mining portion of of wanting to explore is vastly different than the scientific reasons to explore. But 
the more we learn about asteroids, the more I think it helps both. Yeah, everyone might learn a little something here, depending on their interests. Uh, Okay, more about how to take a sample from an asteroid. How fast is Bennu traveling, and how did OSIRIS-REx catch up with it? So I don't know. I can give you an exact speed of Bennu, but I can at (laughs) least talk about how we collected the sample. Sure. So we approached Bennu in 2018, late 2018, and we spent some time flying back and forth around the asteroid before we got into orbit. And we went in and out of orbit several times. Because it's large enough to have its own orbit. Right. Uh Yep. And a small amount of uh, gravitational field around it. So we actually hold two Guinness Book of World Records on this mission for a smallest body ever orbited and smallest orbit. So it was quite the feat with our navigation team and engineering team to fly that trajectory. Yeah. I mean, it it is in orbit, but it would be presumably pretty weak. Right. Uh Because Mm -hmm. of the size of the body. Yes. Okay. And then how fine can you get with the movements of OSIRIS-REx? So we had to line up exactly with Bennu's rotation for our touch and go or tag, which was sample collection. And we wanted to make sure that we touched down in a particular crater called the Nightingale Crater. That was our sample collection site. Uh, deemed to be most interesting by science and achievable from an engineering standpoint to get to the surface and back away in a safe manner. And how fast is that process? How quick is the touch and go? It's just a matter of seconds that we're actually in contact with the asteroid. The entire event is on the order of hours because you need to leave orbit, descend to the surface, touch the surface to get the sample, and then back away. So the entire event was uh, on the order of four or so hours, but the actual contact with the surface was just a handful of seconds. Is all of that pre-programmed or is there someone with a joystick? It's all pre-programmed because Bennu is tens of minutes away when we did our sample collection. So you can't do anything in real time. So we send all the parameters and sequences to the spacecraft ahead of time, and then we wait and watch from ground. Tens of minutes away, meaning the delay on communication, uh, on any signal, is significant. Right. It's not a real-time affair. You called the crater Nightingale? hmm Was that after Florence, or are we talking about the bird? A uh, bird. So all features on Bennu are named after Egyptian birds. Ha. Huh. And what does Bennu mean? Oh, we have to look that up. Bennu Ooh. is, yeah, there is an Egyptian tie to that. Bennu was named by a third grader in North Carolina prior to launch. So the asteroid had a RQ numbered name, and there was a contest to name the asteroid for this mission. Okay, we are going to Google this together and discover it together. Bennu meaning. Okay. Bennu, an ancient Egyptian deity linked with the sun, associated with creation and rebirth. And apparently this student thought the touch-and-go device was shaped similar to a heron, and Bennu looks like a heron. Did we, we learn that together? Yes. Oh, that's exciting. Okay, so talk to me about your state of mind after the touch and go, when you knew it was successful. How did that feel? That was a lot of relief and excitement, right? There's a lot of preparation that goes into doing anything in deep spaceflight and especially doing something never done before. And so the moment that we knew that we had captured enough sample uh, to be considered successful was really the point in which I think the team celebrated. Yeah, and maybe breathed again. Right. <laughs> yeah, then then we had to stow the sample, which we knew was going to be an intricate process. 
Oh, how so? So the sample collector is on the end of about an 11-foot arm. And so it's similar to our arm where you have a, an elbow-wrist kind of joint that you have to move in a particular fashion in order to get that sampler head tucked into the return capsule just right. So that whole process took us uh, just over a day Hmm. to get everything lined up just right and snapped into the return capsule and have that closed. And secure, yeah. Now, OSIRIS-REx, since this touch and go, has simply been coming back towards Earth. That's, it's a long journey. Yeah, so our sample collection was October 20th of 2020. We flew back by the Nightingale Crater in April of 21 just to have pre- and post-images of where we had done the collection. And then we left Bennu in May of 21. So it's been almost a year and a half of cruising home. It's remarkable you remember those dates. It's almost like a friend's birthday. Yeah, a little bit. A lot of those things <laughs> stick with you. Launch dates, you know, Earth return dates. Yeah, what happens to OSIRIS-REx after it, you know, kind of deposits this so, near us? Yeah, we'll swing by Earth and drop off the return capsule on September 24th. And then the spacecraft will actually head out to an extended mission to go to asteroid Apophis. And we'll arrive there in 2029. Okay. And is that an asteroid that is farther from us than Bennu or closer? It's closer. Apophis will make its closest approach to Earth in April of 2029, just before we get there. Okay. Now, this capsule, it will have to go through the atmosphere. So I imagine that it's quite heat protected. Yes, it definitely has a heat shield on board. Very similar to the capsule itself is very similar to our Stardust mission that brought back samples of Comet Vild 2 in 2006. What size is it? What should I be picturing? It's about 80 centimeters in diameter, weighs about 50 kilograms. So it takes about two people to pick up. Oh, okay. Kind of like the size of a large tire. Will your eyes get to see for themselves what it brings back? Or will this all be, you know, screens and photos that are sent to you? So here in Denver, we'll be sending the commands to release the capsule, and then we'll have our recovery team in Utah. The recovery team will pick up the return capsule, disassemble it a little bit in order to get a nitrogen purge on the sample, and then they'll package everything up and fly it down to Houston. A nitrogen purge. What's that? That's in order to keep the sample pristine. Uh-huh. Right? So we, we don't want it to be exposed to anything else here on Earth any more than it has to. So they'll put a nitrogen purge on it, get it all packaged up, and sent down to the Johnson Space Center the following day. Uh, Some of our team members will actually travel down to Houston and we'll be able to, at that point, reunite with our recovery team. Uh We will have lots of video feeds and things that the science team will make available to us. But you, Sandy, you you will be minding the fort here. I will be here in Denver or in Littleton, where we fly our spacecraft from, from the Lockheed Martin facility there. And then I will travel to Houston. Oh, you will? I will after the fact, I'm so glad you'll have that experience. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Sandy Friend is Spacecraft Mission Operations Manager for Lockheed Martin in Littleton. If all goes as planned, OSIRIS-REx will return a sample of the asteroid Bennu to Earth Sunday. After a break, we'll stick to our planet, where a program to protect four species of fish in the West is itself threatened. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Hey, it's Rebecca. And Luis, the hosts of Music Blocks. A podcast about your favorite sounds, how they're created, and what makes them special. We're returning for season three. And this season, we're talking about instrument families. The different instrument families share connections that span the globe. In different cultures. In different genres. The new season of the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Find it wherever you listen. Programs to save four Western fish species could face extinction if Congress doesn't act this session. CPR's Tom Hess and Caitlin Kim lay out the hurdles facing the Upper Colorado and San Juan River recovery programs. Uh, let's just see what we get to start. It's going to be too, too ambitious. It might be fish in a barrel, but it still requires a team effort to pull a razorback sucker out of one of the 90 or so tanks at a U.S. Fish and Wildlife hatchery north of Grand Junction. The hatchery just looks like a steel shed in the desert but it's part of a decades-long effort to restore this and other fish species. All right, so the first fish we have is a razorback sucker. Very unique fish. Dale Ryden is the project leader at the Fish and Wildlife Office in Grand Junction. At any given time, he watches over more than 20,000 endangered fish being raised here. The hatchery is really kind of that first key. Um, When I started 30-plus years ago, I had never seen a razorback sucker. It took four years before I saw one out of the wild. That's how rare they were. Rare because they were being outcompeted by scores of non-native fish species that were being introduced to the river over the years. Now I can go out and in a typical day of sampling, we might get anywhere from 20s to a couple hundred razorback sucker just within the valley here. The Upper Colorado Endangered Fish Recovery Program and its sister effort for the San Juan River marries the efforts of multiple states, tribes, water users, and environmental groups. They do things like restore river habitat, manage river flows, remove non-native fish, and fund hatchery programs. Those relationships have gotten easier with time, but when all this started decades ago, they were... Less fun than they are now. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and you know, the lucky thing for me was in those early days, I was a biological technician, so I was out catching the fish. I didn't have to sit through the contentious meetings and things. But, you know, again, I, th- I don't think anybody was disingenuous. They were all just trying to do their job and, and get the water they needed. But over time, there's been a lot of really good partnering, um, you know, just a lot of give and take, and, and the folks are all really willing to work together, and that's what makes this all work. The razorback sucker is one of four species Congress sought to protect with this funding. The others are the Colorado pike minnow, the bony tail, and the iconic humpback chub. All four have been showing signs of recovery. It's been a long road to get to this point, and Ryden said it will take more time to finish the job. You know, the thing that people forget is that these are really long-lived fishes. As I mentioned, they live 40 to 50 years. Um, We may have only had three or four generations of those fish in my entire career. Building fish passages, um, building hatcheries, going out and doing the right management actions, all that takes time. The program has been a hit with its partners on the ground, But there's only so much they can do without Congress taking action thousands of miles away. That's because the programs still need to be regularly reauthorized and funded. And that isn't easy in today's political climate. If you look at cost-benefit, I think we can demonstrate significant benefits relative to the costs. You know, maybe not the best of show, but, but among the best. That's Democratic Senator John Hickenlooper. 
he and Republican Senator Mitt Romney introduced a bill to reauthorize the programs for seven years and to bump up their funding. I just really want to get this done. On the House side, though, reauthorization has divided the Colorado delegation. Democratic Congressman Joe Neguse has introduced a bill that's the same as Hickenlooper's, while Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert has a bill with less funding than the Senate version. At a hearing on her bill, Boebert described it as a clean reauthorization. By extending conservation programs at, at current funding levels for seven additional fiscal years. In an interview with CPR News, Boebert says she wants to see the programs reauthorized, but insists a bill with more money than hers would not pass the House and the GOP majority. Nagoose worries that without increasing funding to meet inflation, the program won't be as successful. And that's not all. It is ironic and, in my view, hypocritical to seek to reauthorize a program, because, of course, that's what we're talking about in this instance, while simultaneously seeking to defund it on the appropriations side. Here's what he means. Lawmakers can reauthorize a program with a certain amount of funding, but it really comes down to how much money Congress finally settles on for that department's overall budget. The Republican-controlled House's proposed budget for the Interior Department is $13 billion less than the last fiscal year, which could mean steep cuts to fish recovery and many other programs. Back in Colorado, Doug Kemper with the Colorado Water Congress is all too familiar with reauthorization and the fight for funding. Anytime you're dealing with Congress, um, my fingers are always crossed on, on asking them to do anything. He can live with current funding levels, but if they go any lower... You certainly got to say this is what we need for the program. And if, um, if that money turns out is not available then, you know, that, that's a whole other set of negotiations. Joe Trungale with the Nature Conservancy adds, even with less funding, he thinks progress will continue for these species, just at a slower pace, and at a time when there is even more pressure on the rivers. The threats that we're facing due to changing climate and increasing demand are going to continue to accelerate. So it's going to continue to be harder. It's not, it's not like we feel like we can take the foot off the, the gas now. When pressed, none of the stakeholders would say which version of the bill they hope is signed into law, just that they're very happy to have bipartisan support for the programs in both chambers. Hickenlooper, a self-described optimist, sees a path for the reauthorization language, most likely by getting it slipped into one of the many must-pass pieces of legislation that await congressional action, be it the farm bill or a budget bill. As for the final funding levels... I would say, I hope it's my numbers and Senator Romney's numbers. But to get there will be a test of lawmakers' abilities and, to a degree, their influence. CPR Washington reporter Caitlin Kim there and Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess as well. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour as a talented chef finds a permanent home for her irresistible dumplings. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Putting your message on the radio isn't the only way to get your business or organization's name out to the CPR community. Every day, thousands of Coloradans visit CPR.org and Denverite.com, looking for the latest news on state politics, climate and the environment, education, the arts, and more. Online or on air, sponsoring Colorado Public Radio is an effective way to connect with your community. Learn more at CPR.org sponsorship. A story now with something delicious inside. 
There's a big metal tray in front of me, the industrial kind they use in restaurants. It's on a counter in a prep kitchen in northeast Denver. This tray fills up with dumplings. Every 20 seconds or so, there's another one ready to be cooked and served from a food truck called Yuan Wonton. Hopefully by the end of the day, we'll have just shy of 4,500 roughly. 4,500 dumplings in a day. Penelope Wong runs Yuan Wonton, which is enormously popular, judging by how fast people snap up anything she makes available for sale online. We visited her kitchen to talk about her varied career and what food means to her. The day we dropped in, in February, Wong was preparing Hainan chicken dumplings. Basically, we took a very, very traditional Chinese dish, um, Hainanese chicken and rice, and we're doing it in dumpling form. It's got, you know, all the aromatics, loads of ginger, fresh garlic, scallion oil. It's just one of those dishes from childhood that is very comforting. Pure nostalgia. Pure nostalgia. Um, We wanted to put it in dumpling form. You are pinching closed these small pancakes, essentially, and creating the most beautiful top on them. What is the verb you use for this? Is it pinching? Is it... Pinching, pleating, folding, turning. It's... um, Oh, say that one more time. Pinching, (laughs) pleating, folding, turning. (laughs) I love it. Okay, it's so poetic. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Oh, that's in one sort of fell swoop that you're doing. Yes. So pinch, pleat, pinch, pleat, fold, pinch, pleat. See, I can't say that five times fast. (laughs) And swirl. (laughs) Swirl is at the end. Do your hands get tired at the end of the day? Yes. Do you have any, like, regimen for caring for them? No. No. (laughs) Stretching. (laughs) Oh, you have, like... Hand stretches? Not really. I just, it's one of those, you just deal with it. Um, I don't know, I have a very high tolerance for pain. And is this meditative work? Is it boring after a while? No, it's absolutely cathartic. Um, When I ran the the country club, like another lifetime ago. um, This this was earlier in your culinary career. You were at Glenmore Country Club mm -hmm. in Cherry Hills Village. Glenmore Country Club, spent probably far too long there. You were the, the club's first female and youngest executive yes. chef. Yes. Yeah. Um, with that role, especially in that arena, comes with a lot of paperwork, a lot of admin. You know, I had a giant team to run. And I've never been one of those chefs that just kind of hung out in the office. I've always been hands-on, wanted to be on the line, wanted to be in fire. So I would come up with these ridiculous prep lists for our busiest night of the week, pasta from scratch gnocchi from scratch, you know, hundreds of orders. And it was selfishly for my own catharsis. Oh, so that you could get out of the office. Exactly. In that kitchen environment with a lot of labor. Exactly. That's where you're happiest. Yes. I think of the cuisine at places like that. I don't necessarily think of strong flavors. Maybe I think of like hamburgers and I don't know, Swiss steak. What was it like? Working at a country club. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing when I first got hired on there. You know, that part of my life, it was sheer survival mode. I was a single mother. Um, I had a one-year-old son, and I literally just graduated from college. And I I needed to support my son. And when I had actually applied there, I initially applied as a banquet server, because that's just what I saw in the classifieds. And when I met with the food and beverage director at the time, she... 
looked at my resume and I mean, my resume was, you know, just working for my family's restaurants. And she said, do you want me to give this to the chef? And I said, honestly, I don't care. I just need a job. Mm. And so she did. She passed it along to the chef and I met with him and he hired me as a, a pantry cook. And I was, okay, sure. And at this point, you know, my exposure to like professional kitchens was PBS and Jacques Pepin, you know. Mm. Um, you would watch those oh, shows as kids. Absolutely. And um, when I first stepped foot in the kitchen, I was like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing. They put me in the pantry station. They taught me how to make the salad and the sandwich. And the whole night of service, I'm like, what the hell is so great about a Cobb salad? Like, it's gross. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm like, oh my God, who wants to eat a club sandwich for dinner? And, um, you know, going through the next few years was, was, it was pretty rough. Um, I was the only woman. There was, a, I mean, harassment on every single level, as you can imagine. And, you know, when I got hired on, they told me that, they were actually shocked the front of the house because I was the only woman that was hired into the kitchen in quite some years at that point. Oh. But, you know, you worked your way up. Um, there was one gentleman who was very kind to me, who was, you know, very father figure to me. So he kind of took me under his wing. And, and you know, eventually I, I worked my way up through every station and was promoted to, to sous chef within a couple of years. I acted as interim chef for... I think twice before they offered me the position. Of executive Of chef. executive. And when I had to do my first menu change as exec, I was like, okay, I have no idea what to put on this menu because... Right. And do you make it a drastic change or right. a subtle change? And there was, it, was, it was pretty rocky. Um, and so I, th I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just kind of run a few specials just to kind of test the waters. Like what? And I was running stuff that I was cooking out of my dad's kitchen at the restaurant. Different noodle dishes. And the first time I ran a noodle dish, it was just like a, a stir-fried lo mein noodle, an egg noodle. And I went out, you know, and asked the member how everything was. And he said, what kind of noodles are these? And he was just kind of dumbfounded. And he was like, this is amazing. And it just kind of took off. But you had known kitchens your whole life. I mean, what was different about the country club one? Professional kitchens, the country club kitchen, compared to the kitchens that I grew up in, vastly different. You know, you, when you go to, to work in a professional kitchen, most kitchens have a brigade system in place. You know, they've got different stations, they've got so many employees, and you're responsible for your station. Whereas, you know, the, the restaurants, that, the kitchens that I grew up in, you're doing everything. You know, there's maybe three people in the, the running the whole show and you're doing everything. And in most Asian kitchens, is there's no recipes. It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, oh. and just you taste it. You know, you go into a professional kitchen, they've got their recipe books, everything is measured out in grams. So it took a lot. Things are weighed. Absolutely. So um, it was going into a very regimented environment. Very, mm -hmm. very. And there was no deviation. Um, when I was promoted to Garmage, um, I was responsible for making all of the salad dressings for the club. What's that word? Garmage. Okay, that's um, that's part of the battalion? Correct. Or brigade, brigade. Yes, brigade. Okay. And so I was making all the, the salad dressings and, and, and cold prep, but I was really just kind of appalled the first time I had made the recipe for the Caesar dressing, just because of, number one, the in ingredients in there and just kind of the the technique and, and, and emulsification and I went rogue with it. You know, I kept the ingredients mainly the same. I just kind of tweaked a couple of amounts, 
But I went rogue with it, and this is just kind of based off of like what I had seen watching the TV shows that I was watching, the cooking shows. And we actually had one of the members call the chef, and she said, I'm coming in to pick up two quarts of this dressing. Whatever you have done to it, keep it that way, because it's actually amazing now. And, you know, the, the, I got called in the chef's office, and he was so mad. Oh, he was mad. Oh, I was in so much trouble. Because I deviated without talking to him about it first, and I, I kind of went rogue with my own recipe. And, um, yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> you talked a little earlier about nostalgia, and yes. that these dumplings, these chicken dumplings in particular, these wontons, are pure nostalgia. So who is it that pops into your mind as you make them? Definitely my grandmother. The first time I learned how to pleat a dumpling, well, I wouldn't say I learned the first time I, she tried to teach me. <laughs> um, it's an art that takes time, I'm guessing. Yeah, I, I, I would sit there and watch her do it. And, and it's funny because the first time I tried to teach Nock, my sous chef here, how to pleat them, it was kind of reminiscent of that, that moment because my grandma sat there and she said, just do it this way. And I sat there and I tried and I was like, I just can't do it. And I hate to say this, but you know, anyone Asian really knows this, but when she yelled at me, it wasn't out of meanness. It was actually quite enduring, but the literal translation is awful. <laughs> of what she would say to you? Yes. Um, do you want to tell me? Well, it just, it, in Chinese it's, um, oh, I don't want to say it, because anyone that understands Chinese is going to be like, oh, that's rude. <laughs> She said, I say nui bao. <laughs> and it's kind of like, oh, you stupid girl. But in Chinese, it's actually endearing and, and, and it's out of love. But the first time I had, had sat down with Nock to try to teach her, she was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I found myself like trying to like, well, I mean, it's just kind of innate, I guess. But she was like, stop yelling at me. <laughs> <laughs> you had adopted your grandmother's stance. Yes, yes, for sure, for sure. How long did it take you to learn then, until you felt like you were good at it? Oh, not until my adult years, for sure. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Um, years of years, mastery. Years, 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 years. Um, years. And not even until we decided to give the full commitment to starting this business that... I really, really sat down and, you know, because we had months and months of building the truck out. And so I was doing a lot of R&D work, um, recipe testing, and obviously, you know, trying to get faster at this. Um, so every time I would make a batch of filling and dough at home, I would time myself to try to get faster and faster and faster. Oh, wow. So it really wasn't until we went full force with this project that, you know, I got as good at these as I am now. Well, so what's your record for... Dumpling, pleating, pinching speed. Wontons, I can do a pan of about 210 in about 12 to 15 minutes. Wow. Pot stickers take a little longer. Pot stickers, I can do about three per minute. And I haven't actually timed myself with this particular fold. Now, I'm curious, the business is yuan wonton. Yes. Is that like after the Chinese currency, yuan? Happenstance, yes. Happenstance. Um, so we, we, when we were talking about our name for the truck, uh, it's a funny story with my husband. He was talking to one of my aunts who has a pretty heavy accent. And he was like, I want you to say, do you want a wonton? And she was like, you want a wonton? 
Ah, and it just kind of stuck. You so, on wonton. Correct. Like, you want, do you want a wonton? And then, you know, as we were going, we were like, actually, that's the Chinese currency. So it's kind of perfect. Yeah, that's this man right here. Everyone, this is Rob. Well, I wonder if cooking connects you to other people, other bits of nostalgia. It absolutely does. Um, Who else? So, you know, I lost my, my, my mother at a very young age. I was 16 when she passed. Having a very, very tight-knit family, you know, we had giant family gatherings every weekend, every Sunday. And, you know, I lost my mother, lost my grandmother, lost my grandfather, and then lost my father. Um, and so it's kind of... All in of, the span of how long? Oh, like 10 years. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of grief in that yes, period. Yes, But when you start to lose family at such a young age, there's so many questions that you have. And there's so many questions I wish I would have asked um, that I never did. Like what? Just what it was like for them growing up in Thailand when they first came over. My father, how he learned how to cook. He's the one that taught me how to cook in the kitchen at the restaurant. They had a restaurant, your folks? Yes, yes. So they owned a restaurant in North Denver for over 25 years. As a child, I was always eager to go to the restaurant to help out because my, my older brother used to go to the restaurant a lot. What kind of a restaurant was it? Was it was a Chinese restaurant. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, long before, like Starbucks now, Chinese restaurant in every corner. So, you know, it was a rarity. Um, it was a Cantonese menu. When I first went to the restaurant to help out, very quickly, within just a couple of months, I would start migrating into the kitchen to hang out with my dad. And sure enough, you know, he started teaching me little things of prep. And my first knife that I ever learned on was a Chinese butcher knife, a Chinese cleaver. You know, I, I could break down a whole chicken by the age of 12. It just, it, it was very, very natural to me, the cooking aspect. And I was able to run that whole kitchen by the time I was 16. Wow. And that was the same age you lost your mom. Right. Um, and that was actually the first moment that I had to run the kitchen was when she was in the hospital because my dad had to leave. And there's a lot of things that I wish I would have asked my family, but the memories that I do have, they surround food. And so, you know, the dishes that I cook, <clears throat> a lot of the dishes from, from my grandmother's kitchen, it's kind of my way of holding on to them. It's interesting because it occurs to me that the movement is a memory too. You know, they talk about muscle memory. Yeah. And so it's as if you have kind of like brain memories of them, but also muscle memory of them. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. I actually, I, I, I noticed this last night. I was prepping in, in the truck and... You know, I have a, a stovetop with six different burners on it, and I have so many pans at my disposal, but <clears throat> I have, like, two favorite pans. And despite the number of items I was making, I was timing it out so I could use the same two pans, which is funny because it just dawned on me last night that my grandmother used to do the same thing. Hmm. She had just her favorite pans that she would use. I know that wontons are also a way for you to connect with the community. Yes. I was moved when I read that you made rainbow wontons for Club Q. Yes. Um, community is a big, big part of our, our business model. One of the reasons why actually I wanted to leave my last post. At the um, country club? Just because it, it's such a bubble. As I count, I think you've got about 120 wontons there now. I'll take your word for it. Okay. I, I did some very quick math. Rows of 16. 
I yeah. hope. <laughs> and will these get fried then? So we flash, we, we have to flash freeze these. Okay. So we'll flash freeze them until our service. Um, now, will these be fried or steamed? Pan fried. These will be pan fried. Mm -hmm. What do you use for oil? I'm curious. We use a very neutral oil, canola. Canola. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you have to test I'm that? I'm going to swap over here to this other one. Oh, yes. Yes, I did a lot of testing. Now we're moving from kind of beige wrappers to green ones. So these are our Szechuan eggplant dumplings. These are our vegan dumplings. Mm. When I was doing a lot of R&D work, you know, I realized we have to have a vegetarian vegan option. I actually took a dish that was just a dish that I, I, I enjoyed snacking on every now and then. I was like, I wonder how this would taste in a dumpling. <laughs> and so I started messing with it and I made them for Rob and I said, try this. And he said, what is it? And I said, well, it's eggplant. He's like, I don't know, I'm good. <laughs> He's like, do we have any bacon or anything? <laughs> and I said, just try it. And he tried it and he was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, and that's kind of been the response on these, surprisingly. It was supposed to be just a dumpling to have as our vegan option and it's actually like become a fan favorite. Is there a place you go to mentally, a, a, somewhere from your childhood you actually picture when you're doing this? There's various places, um, but every single time it's a kitchen. It's a kitchen. It's either in the kitchen at home with my grandmother, in the back prep kitchen of my dad's restaurant, in the kitchen of, you know, I have a extended family who own restaurants all throughout Denver, um, and I would kind of hop around to each restaurant to help out whoever needed it. Huh. So it's usually always in some kitchen. Did you like working at that age? I never considered it work, to be honest. You know, when I look back, it's funny because obviously it was free labor to my parents, but... <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. Thank you for saying it for me. No, it was obviously free labor for my parents, but at the same time, it was the best education of my life. Is your mission to give people the comfort you had as a kid, is it to expose them to new things and new flavors? For sure. 100%. On both? Absolutely. Okay. All of it. Um, it's really personal to me because growing up Asian American in Denver, um, I'm a Denver native, and growing up Asian American in Denver wasn't quite as, for lack of a better word, cool as I guess it can be now. It wasn't as, I don't want to say easy either, because I know that there's still a lot of uh, difficulties, but I was bullied a lot. I was made fun of. Um, kids can be mean, you know, and there's certain things that, you know, I would, I would have to bring to school for lunch. And, you know, I remember I would beg my mom to just make me a simple ham sandwich. And, I, and the thing is, like, I knew I would never, I was never even going to eat it because I just, it was gross. You know, I wanted, you know, whatever the leftovers from dinner was the night before, that's what I really wanted. You didn't actually want the ham sandwich. No, I just didn't want to be made fun of that day. You wanted what to I fit was bringing. in. Exactly. And that was the norm when I was growing up. And so... Did she ever make you a ham sandwich? Oh, yeah. And it was disgusting. It was disgusting. <laughs> it was gross. And what would you have preferred specifically? Anything we had for dinner the night before. Anything at all? Anything that my grandma made for dinner the night before. Okay. Um, what was her best dish? She had so many. So many. I don't know. It usually involved rice. Uh -huh. <laughs> Every single meal was rice. But you bring these, these meals to school and, and these kids are like, what is that smell? Or I mean, it was traumatizing. And... You know, when you look at today's culture, you know, before COVID, when my daughter, we, I would pack her lunch to school and, 
you know, they didn't have any major restrictions at school on sharing and whatnot. And for a while there, she was asking for dumplings for lunch. I was like, okay, sure. Oh. And I would pack her dumplings for lunch. And then the next day she would ask for dumplings again and she would ask for more. And I'm like, are you actually eating all these? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finally, like days later, I'm like, there is no way you're eating all these. And she's like, okay, I'm sharing with so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And I'm like, okay, that's actually kind of cool. Such a difference from what you experienced. Absolutely. And the fact that she can grow up in such a positive environment, so different from my experience, is just, it's such a good feeling. And if we can be a part of just kind of that, that education, you know, to help others understand the foods that are important to our culture, I'm totally here for it. Penelope's gone to wash her hands a bit as she's finished filling this giant tray of wontons. As she grabs another tray and starts a whole 300. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> well, Penelope, it's been a delight to talk to you and to watch you say it again. Pinch. Pinch, pleat, fold, swirl. Yeah. I think that's what I said, isn't it? Thank Pinch, you. Pleat, thank you so fold, much. Swirl. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Chef Penelope Wong of Yuan Wonton. Since we spoke in February, she has opened a brick and mortar location in Denver's Park Hill neighborhood, which she shares with two other food truck businesses. When we come back, a gardening project to teach kids winds up teaching an entire community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Swink is an archaic word. Find it in literature from the Middle Ages, like the vision of Piers Plowman. In sweat and swink thou shalt earn thy meat. Or find it in southeastern Colorado, in the Arkansas Valley, the little town of Swink. They first called it Fairmont, but in 1900, when word came from Washington that there were already too many Fairmonts around, a meeting was called, and then George W. Swink walked in late. He had dug the Rocky Ford ditch to bring river water onto the prairie, then planted and promoted cash crops of melons and sugar beets. He'd invented the cantaloupe crate, served in the state senate, fathered 11 children. But did Mr. Swink read Old English literature? We'll never know. But he knew what it took to work the land that brought up the town they named for him. To toil, labor, or exert oneself, especially in difficult or tiring circumstances. To swink. A Colorado postcard from CPR. With support from Mint's Law Firm in Lakewood. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A weedy, sandy, vacant lot in Denver's Montbello neighborhood. Transformed a while back, two adults and eight students turned it into a garden, which has become a verdant classroom. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine found the harvest was much more than tomatoes and sunflowers. We have harvest baskets. With an ever-present smile, Austin Luce calls out. <laughs> oh, it's the little things. <laughs> a circle of people in front of her, a spiral of earthen mounds behind her. Tonight there are potatoes. We have lots of cut sunflowers, so please bring home a beautiful bouquet. 
This community garden in northeast Denver is a massive spiral made of the neighborhood residents' compost, mixed into soil, covered in mulch and wood chips. The garden is sponsored by the Consumption Literacy Project, headed up by Luce. The group supports students, community, and educators to change waste and consumption patterns. This summer, the garden produced a prodigious bounty. We had corn, tons of tomato, chilies, Cucumbers, pumpkins, tomatoes. tomatoes. I grew watermelons last season, and now we're starting. The garlic is awesome, and the tomatoes were so. Every Monday night before the sun drops, children, teens, and older folks wander between stations. So Justin is going to be doing bees. Rick is going to do mushrooms. Jesse's going to be working. 13-year-old Manuel Galvan and the garden's agricultural specialist Justin Twist harvest potatoes. These are good potatoes. Yeah, more potatoes than me. A little baby potato. Throughout the spring and summer, Twist taught composting. That takes two things, browns and greens. Browns, sticks, leaves, twigs, and sawdust are carbon-rich. Greens, food scraps, plants, and grass clippings, are nitrogen-rich. Add water and air, and you've got compost. There's a ratio we have to follow, okay? So a bucket full of greens, we need at least... Two to three buckets full of browns. One green, three brown. That's Pamela Young. She's one of the older regulars here to learn. And you have knowledge. Yes. So, but what about when I'm trying to do it at home? Twist explains that first she needs a compost bucket. Everyone's free to take home a bucket. And many have. And they've started their own gardens at home. By the end of the summer, Young is a convert. To think that all these scraps, all these tree branches... And the air and the wind and the microorganisms, that makes real dirt. And it's black and it's rich and it's beautiful. From the uh, tomatoes that I got here last year, I made 16 jars of tomato sauce. But this garden has given her so much more. It feels like my folks. This feels like my family. Same with 19-year-old Ace Hill, who lives nearby. I was like, I have a place I can come and be peaceful draw, paint, do everything I love in one space. She and some other teens and children are painting at a table in the middle of giant sunflowers. They're calm and happy. Ever since I've gotten here, I felt like my like self-esteem boosted, my confidence boosted. I found out I could do a lot more than just what I'm used to. It's like being here, it's a second home. And if anything, I would say it's my first home. I love it here. Eight-year-old Haley Olvera. It smells nice and fresh out here. And that smells good. Music plays as people stop for a snack. Ron Taylor says the garden is teaching him so many things. Well, where do I begin? (laughs) Taylor is 73. He eats healthier foods now. I promise you, ma'am, when you get my age, you want to be healthy. I show you everything been in this body. But now is the time to cleanse this body. And you do it organically. He's observing things more. Then the beauty of it all is watching it grow. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, none of these sunflowers were out here, you know, and just to see them, the tomatoes that are out here, start seeing bright, vibrant colors. But the best thing, he says, is the feeling the harmony of everyone working in the garden together gives him. And I promise you, I'm an old guy, but when black, white, Spanish, even African, and Vietnamese that be out in this garden, That is what God is looking for. 
the unity of the body. We all got food in common. So it isn't just a vegetable, it's us growing. For CPR News, I'm Jenny Brendine. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the team that makes our show flourish. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, back in Denver. You're with CPR News and KRCC.